Good morning, church family. Um, I'm not recommending that everyone watch that show, uh, as it does have some pretty off-color humor at times, um, but I felt like that clip does a great job of capturing the fear of losing your job to a machine. Anybody here ever been concerned about that? Yeah? Few? Few? If you've been to Walmart lately, you may have noticed that some of them uh, have almost completely done away with the checkers, uh, the one over at Custer, for instance, and instead of, you know, um, the shopper uh, coming up and, and having a human being that does the, the ringing out and the, you know, the checking, the bagging and all that, instead, the shopper has to ring up all of the purchases themselves using a more sophisticated self-checkout machine, uh, and, and this way, Walmart can have just two employees overseeing about two dozen check stations rather than paying two dozen employees to run all of the checker stations. Um, and I could argue that even before they had self-checkout, there were times when you'd have two employees and 24 stations open anyway, but that's not the point. Um, the point is, there may have been some people who lost their job, or, or at least lost an opportunity for employment to a machine. And to be fair, machines, they've gotten pretty complicated, right? Uh, I'm sure they're, they're putting more and more people's jobs in jeopardy all the time. And it could be a pretty solid blow, I would think, to your self-esteem to lose your job to a machine. But it could be worse. Can you imagine losing your job to a rock? That would be very, very difficult to experience, wouldn't it? Unless you're a paperweight. I guess that would make sense. But other than that, to lose your job to a rock would make you feel like you really weren't doing a good job of whatever your job was. It would be an embarrassment. Now, I want you to keep that thought in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it. Um, now, while the kids are finding the bingo pictures, if they do that, I'm just going to explain what we're doing. We're going to take a short detour today. So if you would, please grab your Bibles, uh, but don't turn to Acts 14. I actually, I felt led this time to do a Palm Sunday message. Um, those of y'all that have been here a while, you probably know I don't, I don't always like to deviate from sermon series for, for like holidays. Um, in fact, I wasn't even planning to preach this until Wednesday of last week. I would already was thinking about something else. I decided I was going to shelve that message until after Resurrection Sunday. Um, so here you go. Uh, we're going to be bouncing around some this morning, but if you want to kind of have an idea of where we're going to be, we're going to be in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke uh, 19, and John 12. We're going to be looking at a, a harmony of the Gospels concerning the triumphal entry. And for anyone who may not be aware, uh, the triumphal entry is what we call Jesus' final trip into Jerusalem uh, in, in this life. His final trip into Jerusalem, and that happened when? Palm Sunday, the Sunday before his, his death and resurrection, right? So we call it Palm Sunday. Uh, we've been talking about the fickle nature of the human heart for the last couple of weeks um, and it's, it's been shown very clearly in the fact that these people essentially threw a parade for Jesus just a few days before some of the same people called for his crucifixion. And what I've tried to do is take uh, the most descriptive parts of each of these gospel accounts and then put them in chronological order into one narrative without repeating, okay? And so we're going to hopefully, hopefully, we're going to get a pretty full picture today of what happened on that Palm Sunday. And there are at least two things that I'm hoping that we'll take away from this. Uh, one is the contrast that we might see between a traditional hero and Jesus Christ in his uh, triumphal entry because a very different entourage, very different set of circumstances. That says a lot about who Jesus is 
and why he came. But the other thing I'm hoping that we can do is look uh, at what people said, what the crowds shouted in response to Jesus coming, uh, and, and how, that, how that truly responds uh, or corresponds to the reality of, of why he came and, and, and why he did what he did. From this side of the cross, I know that we, we have a much better vantage point you know, to see uh, how well Jesus fit their words uh, a whole lot better. We can see it now than they could see it at the time. Um, so anyway, that's where this message is headed. So if you would, uh, please bow with me in prayer and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to get to speak to your people. Such a blessing and a privilege to be able to preach your word, and I pray, Father, that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Lord, I, I know I have nothing valuable to say apart from your word and uh, the things that you have elected to share with your people. And so I pray, God, that this will be something that each person can grab a hold of and uh, that they, they can take it with them and that they can learn from it and they can apply it to their lives through this week. We thank you for Jesus. And we celebrate him today, and it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, starting in John 12, 12. The next day, he says, this is the day after the Pharisees had essentially ordered Jesus' death, right, because he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, the fact that they were carrying palm branches, that's, that's where we get the name Palm Sunday. Uh, and it was a common practice back then that a celebrated war hero might be met upon his return from battle by crowds that were waving these palm fronds. And that was their way of showing their adoration. Of course, a war hero is going to be riding in with his army, right? And most likely he's going to be surrounded by some hand-picked elite soldiers. You know, for instance, King David, he had his 30 mighty men, and then he had three other champions, right? And those guys were with him all the time. They were kind of his, his you know, SEAL Team 6 or whatever. And, and it was kind of like combining a big show of force with a parade, sort of like, like a tank column nowadays might be. But Jesus didn't have an army, and he didn't have any, any elite bodyguards. You know, I mean, Peter could barely chop off an ear, as we find out later. Instead, he was surrounded by ordinary folks, you know, his disciples, some women who had helped support his ministry, some other, you know, kind of a ragtag crew, some odds and ends of people. Um, and, and, and mainly, this, this is people who had received Jesus. They had received him. They had received his word, and they followed him. And it was a pretty wide variety of people. So Jesus wasn't coming as a display of military might. Jesus was coming to display the character of God. He was not impressed by man's pomp and circumstance, and he wasn't trying to, to do that himself. We're going to continue now from Matthew 21. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, which means house of unripe figs, by the way, um, they came to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. It's an interesting choice, this donkey, this colt. You know, if Jesus had been like a traditional hero, he would have come in riding a, a mighty war horse. You know, our, our equivalent today would be 
someone standing up in an open-top Humvee, you know, and kind of waving and saluting as you go down the road. A conquering hero wants to showcase his strength by coming on a, a gallant, powerful steed, you know, probably with some armor and, and wearing some, some garlands of flowers. But that's not what Jesus did. He came down the mountain riding a donkey's colt. I mean, I, well, I actually get a mental picture, and I kind of enjoy it. You know, it's, it's, it's not just a donkey. It's the foal of a donkey. Incidentally, Matthew's gospel is the only one that, that mentions that there were two donkeys, although we know that Jesus rode the colt. And I think that's interesting. It, it may be that the foal was so young that it couldn't yet be separated from its mother. And I actually missed including this in today's text, but, but it also says in Mark Jesus says it's a cult that no one has ever ridden, which indicates it was very young indeed. And Matthew continues, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a foal, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went, they did as Jesus had directed them. Well, of course, you know, because Jesus said so. Uh, and, and of course, again, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy here, and we're going to see why in just a moment. But let's back up again and note, a conquering hero would typically be characterized by great confidence in his ability, right? You know, so, some of it might be well-founded, maybe if he was a really good general or whatever, uh, but often it was probably more or less hubris, which means being confident to the point that it could become dangerous, We've all probably been here at some point in our lives. You know, we, we just had a success. Maybe we feel like, you know, we, we can take on the world now. Um, but that's, that's a pretty good visual, I would think, for a military parade. But not Jesus. No, Jesus has an entirely different feel to his procession. You know, like his entire ministry, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is characterized by humility. Just think about this. I mean, sure, there, there's a crowd that's shouting, you know, all these amazing things, but he doesn't look like a typical hero. For one thing, he's riding on the barnyard of equivalent of, of a Ford Festiva, right? Like this, this little tiny donkey, this baby donkey he's riding is probably so small, I picture his sandals like brushing against the ground occasionally. And... and in the, in the movies, and the paintings, it usually has Jesus kind of high up. You know, he's riding on a donkey. They forget this is a little donkey. He might have been below the average eyesight level of people. I, I'm just, like everything else he did, this is a sign that God is tremendously humble. I mean, after all, his, his ultimate goal in coming to Jerusalem, it wasn't to glorify himself. Jesus came to glorify his father. And he came to be glorified in his obedience unto death. In fact, we, if we were to go far enough in Luke's narrative, which we're not going to today, but we would see that somewhere in the journey, Jesus begins weeping over Jerusalem and lamenting its impending destruction. That's humility. That is very unlike a traditional hero. Reading on now from Mark 11. And some of those standing there said to them, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> Untying this colt? And, and they told him what Jesus said. And they let him go. 
I mean, I love how they're just like, oh, the Lord needs it? Cool, have at it, you know? That's not what most of our attitudes would probably be if some random stranger was trying to steal our stuff. We might be like, uh, what you doing there? No, no, um, and, and yet this is how they responded. Um, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And once again, this is, this is a, a pretty amazing sign of respect for Jesus, okay? Because outside of, of your land and your home, your livestock, your cloak was one of the most expensive things that you owned. And people were just tossing them in the road for a donkey to walk on. You, you know what donkeys do? That's, that's risky business, y'all. To just throw something valuable on the ground for barnyard animals to walk on top of. And, and, and not only that, but the tunic that they wore under their cloak was basically an undergarment. So to take off your cloak in public, that wasn't a really common thing. It was almost like standing around in your thermals, you know? So they were tossing their cloaks on the road. And then we get an idea from going back to John why they were doing this, why they were so worked up. Because John says the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So there are folks who are still going around spreading the word. This man must be the Messiah. He just raised someone from the dead. So in other words, the reason for the huge crowds and all this excitement was that many of them had heard about this. They heard Jesus had raised a dead man back to life, and that was kind of a big deal. So this is connected to what they had said earlier, what John said earlier, we're gonna, uh, or said the crowd said, and we're going to read that again shortly. We're not going to do it right now. Um, but we're going to continue with segments from Matthew and Mark. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Don't worry, we're going to come back to that too. Um, Luke 19 says, As he, that's, that's Jesus, was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, reading all these things that, that the crowds are saying, we can definitely see that they're, they're in celebration mode here, right? But there's so much more to it than that. And we're going to spend some time today looking at the claims that these crowds were making about Jesus and how they're true and even more true than those people realize. So we're going to put all those things together on one page, okay? All, all four gospel records um, show that praises were shouted by the multitude, and there are quite a few overlapping statements, but each gospel contains something unique. And so what I've tried to do here is include pretty much one of everything without all the repetition, all right? So, so that we can get a full picture of what the crowds were saying about Jesus. And I, and I hope you're tracking with me. There's some really deep stuff, okay? Starting with John's record, we read, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, this is a reference to a promise that God made to King David all the way back in 2 Samuel that a king would come from his family line that would be the ultimate ruler of God's people. And this, this was not a conditional 
covenant either. You know, unlike some of God's promises that rely on the obedience of the other party, this promise is entirely based in the Lord's faithfulness, faith, faithfulness to himself. In fact, I'm going to share with you uh, some of what the Lord says in Jeremiah 33. This is centuries before Jesus, uh, excuse me, centuries after David reigned as king and centuries before Jesus came. And uh, please stay engaged because this is powerful. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. At that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. That, that, that very same word picture is used in Isaiah. A righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And he goes on to say soon after, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. Is that a solid enough promise for you? I think it is. You know, the funny thing is that these people were expecting a ruler that was going to show up that would be like their, their traditional heroes and, you know, a conquering king whose robe was going to be stained with the blood of his enemies. And, and that's not what they got, at least not at that time, anyway. Jesus' coronation would not be with a crown of gold, but with a crown of thorns. They didn't know their king was going to be executed. But see, they also didn't know what we know now, that their king would be resurrected. Even though Jesus had told the disciples, they didn't believe him. He was going to overcome sin and death. And a time is coming, folks, when, when Jesus is going to return and he's going to be riding a white horse and it, he's going to be brandishing a, a two-edged sword of the word and he's going to be stained in the blood of his enemies and he's going to have king of kings and lord of lords emblazoned on his thigh. That's all going to happen. And he will wipe out his enemies. But that wasn't to come yet. What about the following from Matthew? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Again, this is a reference to the Davidic line, okay? Which, that meant the people, they understood. They were correctly assuming that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah who had come to save his people. They, they, they grasped this. And I relearned something this week. I'm pretty sure I knew it a long time ago, but I'd long forgotten it. The word Hosanna is Hebrew for Lord, save us. The people were crying out for a rescuer. You know, back in Zechariah 9.16, they'd been promised that there would come a day when God will save them as a people. So once again, we're reminded that the multitude, at this point, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had come to rescue his people, and they were absolutely right about that, right? But again, they were looking for physical salvation from physical oppression. This is even a place where the gospel gets muddled today, incidentally. That's not what the gospel is. It's not about physical salvation from physical oppression. Jesus had not come to save his people from the Romans. He came to save them from what? Their sins. Who said that? Gabriel said that to Mary. Luke chapter 1. This is precisely what he did. Not by going to war with a sword in his hand, but with his hands bound 
and later nailed to a cross. But it is his death and his, his resurrection that serve as a rescue for all who come to him in faith. You know, Hebrews 7.25 tells us that he is able to save, I like this phrase, save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So not only our king, but our savior as well in a far greater context than, than, than any other man could ever provide because he was the word made flesh. He's God the son in human form. So what about the gospel of Mark? And there we read, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And Once again, this, this is a proclamation that they understood the messianic promises. They were fulfilled in Jesus, but once again, they weren't fully comprehended. The, the coming kingdom to the people, they, they thought of an earthly kingdom, right, where Jesus would sit on a physical throne in the capital city you know, of, of Zion and rule the people with great power, great authority, like his ancestor David did. They were expecting Jesus to be the restorer of the nation of Israel, bringing them back to prominence on the world stage and putting their foot on the neck of all the other nations. That's what they were expecting. Of course, that's not the immediate result of Jesus coming, which was a pretty massive disappointment to a lot of people. They got very discouraged when they realized that Jesus wasn't going to fulfill their expectations What's kind of stunning about this viewpoint is, is it was so, so deeply ingrained, it persisted among the disciples even after Jesus' resurrection. They still didn't get it. Remember in Acts chapter 1, it was way back several months ago, verse 7, they asked the risen Christ, at this time are you going to restore the nation of Israel? You know? We, we do see that it started to dawn on them after the Holy Spirit, you know, filled the church. Because in Acts 3, Peter says that Jesus was taken up into heaven, notice the word, until the time for the restoration of all things. But it's not until the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, writes about how God was making all things new, that we get a glimpse of, of, of the reality of what the restoration is really going to look like. God is going to essentially start from scratch in this physical world. He's going to carry over our spirit from this life and give us new bodies and a new creation to explore without the millstone of sin tied around our necks. It's going to be awesome. It's a far greater restoration than, than the Jews realized. What's even more, the restoration of our spirits begins here, in this life, on this planet, because when we are saved in Jesus, when that happens, we are a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. And while we don't, we don't yet get to see the fullness of what that means, it, one day we will. We will. We will see clearly what we now see through the glass darkly. And praise God for that promise. It's an awesome promise. Let's look at one more uh, Praise that only Luke's gospel records from the multitude. It's in verse 38. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know that phrase, in the highest, shows up pretty often in the Bible. It, it pretty much always refers to God himself. All, all of the glory 
of this coming kingdom would belong to God. But it's, it's the first phrase in that sentence that leaps out at me, peace in heaven. It's kind of a, a similar expression to peace on earth. I think what the crowd was referring to is the peace that exists between a holy God and his holy people when he makes them holy. They realized their Messiah was also their reconciler. You know, in Ezekiel 37, 26, God refers to a covenant of eternal peace that he would make with his people. The nation of Israel had been through, through just terrible trials over the centuries. You know, they'd been oppressed, they'd been exiled, they'd been ruled over at various times by, by some pretty terrible uh, other nations. And in each circumstance, it was due to them straying from God's covenant every time. But they knew, they knew that God had promised through Jeremiah the prophet that a time was coming when he was going to put his spirit in his people. And they knew that that was going to happen because God had promised it. And, and all of them, he said, would know him from the least to the greatest. And when that happened, there would no longer be a need for God to punish his people. You know, the, he, he wasn't going to have to subjugate them anymore to other nations. There would be peace between God in heaven and his people on earth. And again, they were right, but not exactly in the way that they were expecting it, nor to the, the degree, the magnitude of what God intended of this peace. Jesus didn't just come so that everyone can sit under his own fig tree and drink water from his own well. You know, it, instead, he came to make his people acceptable to himself through the sacrifice of Jesus and, and, and thus to make true and lasting peace with us. Not just temporary peace. Forever peace. This was accomplished through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. As Colossians 1 says, in Christ... God was reconciling the word to himself, the world, excuse me, to himself, not holding their trespasses against us or against them. They don't count. He's not counting our trespasses. In Christ, he reconciled the world to himself. The, the, the gift of peace with God in heaven through the forgiveness of our sins is free to anyone who'll accept it. And that is an amazing gift. It's a wonderful blessing. Before we get to the last blank there at the bottom of your bulletin insert, I want to examine one last difference between a, a typical you know, conquering hero and Jesus Christ. A traditional hero received the victory procession upon returning home victorious from battle. He was given honors because he had already won. This was not the case with Jesus, however, his procession, his, his royal welcome was on the way to becoming victorious. Jesus' victory took place on the cross where he defeated sin by paying the price that we owed with his perfectly sinless blood. And his further victory took place in a tomb when he defeated death and the grave by rising to life and proving himself to be the Son of God. And again, friends, we have, on, on this side of the cross, 
Again, we have an incredible advantage because we get to experience Jesus in a way that the, the most of the Israelites of the day would not. We get to know him as our redeemer. He redeemed us. To redeem means to buy something or someone back, to ransom them. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What an amazing truth to ponder. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. We are no longer subject to the fate required by fallen creation because though our bodies will die, our spirits will live eternity with God in the new heaven and in the new earth that's to be revealed when Jesus returns and makes everything new again. Our, our love for Jesus should, and for God, it should, it should rest on the foundation of who he is and what he's done. It should be based in the gospel, who Jesus is and what the Father did through him. Through Christ, we are redeemed. We'll end on the, the last uh, couple of verses of Luke 19. Upon hearing the, these, these startling and wonderful claims by the multitude to see that the Pharisee leaders are getting worried. Luke writes, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell them to stop saying such blasphemous things about you. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? This, this truth was so evident and so magnificent that even inanimate objects, stones, would be compelled to honor God if the people had not done so. so. So let me ask you, friends, back to my question from the beginning. Can you imagine losing your job to a rock? Brothers and sisters, my job, your job, our job is to proclaim the wonders of Christ who called us out of his darkness and into the wonderful light, as Scripture says. And as the song says, it's true. That's our job. Don't lose your job to a rock. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what we're created to do. Lift up Jesus. Wave your palm branches. Cast your possessions before him to pave his way and follow him where he leads. As the song says, ain't no rock going to cry in my place. As long as I'm alive, I'll glorify his holy name. Amen? Friends, we've come to the end of the sermon as always. I want to provide a time and place for people to publicly make any decision that the Lord is impressing on your mind and heart right now. Listen, if you've not believed in Jesus before today, but you do now, or, or if for some, some other reason you've never been obedient to his command to confess him and to be baptized, do it today. Stop, stop wavering. 